Hi, my name is Stephen Brandt, and I want to welcome you to episode 8 of the RelativityChallenge.com podcast. You might recall that in episode 2, and again in the stories presentation, I presented an algebraic problem in Einstein's equations. However, I also introduced a paradox. I used a brute force technique to show that there was a problem in Einstein's Xi derivation, but I also said that his resulting equation, in its unnormalized form, was correct. Then I go on to say that Einstein's tau equation, which appears to be a very straightforward algebraic sub, uh, simplification, is actually incorrect. In today's show, we're going to resolve this paradox by explaining the root cause behind the problem in Einstein's derivation. And in order to do this, we're going to have to talk about functions. So we're going to spend a little time taking a look at functions to make sure we're all on the same page. And then we're going to look at the xi and tau derivations. Before I begin, I want to share with you an important milestone in my research. I had been reading Einstein's 1905 paper for several years with the intent of not only understanding his work, but also understanding why he chose the words he chose to use. One of the last phrases that I fully understood appeared in section 3 and it occurs when he says tau is a linear function. In fact, as you'll see today, I, like most people, read that statement and continued to treat tau as if it were an equation. It wasn't until I was rewriting my original paper from the perspective of functions that Einstein's statement jumped out at me. I said, tau is a function. I had just discovered why the problem existed and why it had been so elusive. So in today's show, I have two objectives. First, I need to explain functions, not only what they do, but also their structure and their rules. Second, I need to show how the xi and tau equations are properly derived, and I will show what Einstein did and how his approach resulted in the mistakes we've previously discussed. So let me begin with a perspective about functions. When I started programming many years ago, I learned a few different programming languages with names such as C or C++ or Java or Pascal. Learning the rules of a language or a syntax can be done in a few days of going through the books. However, mastering each of these languages can take several years. I believe that functions offer the same challenge. Today, I hope to take a fairly complex topic and present some of the key points. I'm not going to cover everything, and in some cases, I'm going to make some simplifying statements. At the end, I hope that you'll have an appreciation for functions and the role that they play in Einstein's derivation. But I also recognize that if this is your first time learning about functions, you may need to listen to this podcast a few times or look at some other material before everything makes complete sense. Of course, I'll do my best to keep this as light and easy to understand as possible. Along those lines, I've prepared another presentation to aid in our conversation today. So please navigate to blog.relativitychallenge.com and download the presentation associated with episode 8. I'm going to assume that you've either already done that and have the file opened, or that you'll pause for a moment to go get it. So let's begin on slide 2. 
In order to fully understand the root cause of the problem in Einstein's 1905 derivation, you have to understand functions. But as you'll see, mathematics doesn't typically treat functions with the same degree of rigor as computer science. In fact, we're going to borrow some of the more specific language from computer science to aid in our understanding. Right off the bat, I want to let you know why this is hard. Many times, if you mistreat a function as an equation, in the mathematics world, it doesn't matter. You still end up with the same result. However, in some cases, as is the case with Einstein's derivation, this mistreatment can cause a problem that is very subtle and hard to find, yet extremely significant. On slide three, we begin by considering the mathematical definition of a function, which is to map elements from one domain to another. But is this definition right? Well, it is, but it isn't complete. This definition doesn't consider the structure of a function or its construction rules. In addition, it doesn't consider its usage rules or limitations. And both of these are important because of a concept called abstraction. And to understand abstraction, try to remember when you first learned algebra. What made it hard? Well, for many, what made it hard was that you had variables to represent things. Why did you need an X and a Y to represent the balance in your checking account and the balance in your savings account? Why not just add those two values together? And the reason was that by using variables, you were able to generalize things and create more general equations. You could use it, you could use these equations without knowing in advance what the specific balances were. So what makes functions hard to initially understand is that they create an additional layer of abstraction on top of variables or on top of algebra. So you can think of functions as giving you the ability to use variables to represent other variables or perhaps to represent other equations. They're not just placeholders for other numbers. Slide four takes a look at Einstein's tau function and highlights the fact that Einstein calls it a function. This is correct since we know that the result of a partial differential equation is a function. But it's slide five that I want you to consider. Notice that I have tau written as a linear function, as Einstein said it was, and I've also presented it to you as an equation. Do you see anything different? Well, you shouldn't. And this is the first important point that I want you to remember. If you can't see that it's a function, you'll end up treating it like it's an equation. And this leads us to our next slide, which tells us what a function should look like. So on slide six, you'll see three ways of specifying a function. The first way, informal, leaves us with a function that looks like an equation. And since equations and functions are different, as you'll see shortly, we want to avoid things that might result in our mistaking a function for an equation. The semi-formal approach lets us know that tau is a function, but doesn't tell us anything about the variables used by that function. And we'll talk about variables shortly. The formal approach provides us with the most information and tells us that tau is a function 
and it also tells us which variables belong to the functions, and implicitly, by doing that, it tells us which variables do not. This is one of the most important characteristics to know about a function, how their variables are used. But before we look at variables, let's take a look at the formal specification of a function. When we write down a function, how should it be written? What should it look like? On slide seven, you'll see the answer to this as I show you the anatomy of a function. A function consists of two parts, the definition, which tells us what a function does, and invocation, which is actually our usage of the function. This particular slide, slide seven, looks at the function's definition. A function definition consists of two parts, a function body and a function signature. The function body is basically an equation that tells us what the function does. The function signature tells us the function name, and it also tells us which variables in the function body are really placeholders and which ones are global variables. These placeholder variables are called parameters when they appear in the function signature and are called local variables when they appear in the function body. You can think of a placeholder in the following way. Let's say you want concert tickets and you have to stand in line, but you can't because you're at work. So you call a friend and he stands in, lines, in line for you, in effect, holding your place in line. Now, any variable that does not appear in the function signature is considered a global variable. Now, there's a lot of terminology in that last paragraph, and I have some diagrams in the rest of the presentation that I hope will make this a little easier to grasp. In addition, I've added a set of definitions to the end of the presentation for your reference. So let me see if I can offer an example that might help explain functions and their variables. I'd like you to visualize a dining room table. For now, let's put a tablecloth on it as you're going to invite three of your closest friends over for dinner. In the terminology of functions, this tablecloth is called a namespace. This is illustrated on slide eight. We're going to put a few items on this particular tablecloth. For example, I have one salt shaker, one pepper grinder, and a stick of butter that we'll put on the, on the tablecloth. This is shown on slide nine. Again, in the terminology of functions, S, P, and B are simply global variables. Any variable that exists in the main namespace is a global variable. Just as when you have dinner guests, they can reach for the salt shaker or the pepper grinder or the butter that's on the table. Functions can do the same thing, sometimes. And it's this sometimes characteristics that we have to explore and understand. So today, you decide you want to impress your guests, so you break out the placemats. Unfortunately, you only have three placemat settings, so you don't get one, you give them to your guests. And you also found the mini salt shaker and mini paper sh pepper shakers. So you put one each on each of the three placemats. And this is illustrated on slide 10. In the terminology of functions, each placemat is a function. And of course, 
head has its own namespace. And each mini salt and pepper shaker is a function variable. As we've talked about before, depending on if they are in the function body, they are a parameter, or excuse me, a local variable. And if they're in the function uh, signature, they are a parameter. So how do they work? Well, when your guests come over, if they need salt or pepper, they're just going to reach for the salt shaker and the pepper right in front of them on their placemat. They're not going to reach for their neighbor's placemat. In fact, that would be rude. And since they have their own, there's no need for them to reach for the ones on the tablecloth. But notice, if anyone needs the butter, they would still need to grab that from the tablecloth. And that's something that they'd have to share. But what if when you were going through your drawers trying to, to find all the material to set the table, you found you didn't have enough mini salt and pepper shakers? So take a look at slide 11. In this case, you can see that the person sitting at the first placemat, which I've called namespace one, has to use the salt and pepper from the table. The person at the second placemat can use his own salt shaker but he has to use the pepper from the table. And the third person uses the salt and pepper from their own placemat. So marrying what we've just discussed with the anatomy of a function that I presented earlier, I want to introduce you to some specific function definitions. This is done on slide 12. One thing to notice about functions is that if a function has a different name, it's obviously a different function. But also, if a function has a different signature, it's a different function, even if it has the same name. Remember, it's not solely the function body that defines the function. It's the entire function definition, which is the function body and the function signature. Slide 13 illustrates which variables are being used by each function. So we have four settings, three of your friends and one setting for you, although you don't have a placemat. Interestingly, you use the same items as your friend who did not get a mini salt and pepper shaker. This is just a reflection that he didn't have anything of his own to use. Each of the other people has something of their own. Visually, you can see how this works. And I'm hoping that you can begin to see how functions do the same thing. Local variables are specific to each function, even if it has the same variable name as another function or the same variable name as a global variable. What gets confusing, as is the case in our example so far, is when those variables have the same name as a global variable. And we'll come back to this point shortly. Slide 14 simply summarizes some of the key points I'd like you to take away from today's discussion on function definitions. The key concept I want you to remember is how important it is to know what variables are local and which are global, because knowing this is critical to the proper use of functions, which you'll see in just a moment when we begin to talk about function invocation. So with that said, let's talk about function invocation, which is simply another way of saying using a function. The standard structure 
of using a function or invoking a function is given on slide 15. You'll see that we assign the result to an instance variable, which is just another global variable that will be given the result of the function. Although some mathematicians show instance variables when the function is defined, as I've done on slide 7, I prefer to only show them when a function is invoked and not when the function is defined. Now, you might recall earlier that I said that local variables and function parameters were placeholders. So the act of using a function replaces those placeholders so that we can properly find our answer. Going back to your friend that was standing in line for the concert tickets, once you get off of work and you see him in line, you take your place in line. For the most part, no one even cared that he was in line on your behalf. What's important is that you're in line now. Since you're going to have to show your ID, which they're going to match to the image you emailed them earlier, to make sure that the right person is getting your ticket. In terms of function, this replacement of placeholder variables with the real variables is done through arguments, sometimes called actual parameters. And we'll see some examples of calling or invoking a function shortly. When using functions, you follow the steps outlined on slide 16. First, you invoke the functions and pass the arguments. You then replace the local variables in the function body with those arguments. And finally, you evaluate the function and set the instance variable to that result. Before we look at some of the specific examples, let's look at three different ways that step one can be performed. As you can see on slide 17, with an informal invocation, you simply set the local variables to the arguments. This is the approach Einstein took. The standard invocation approach is positional. It simply associates the first argument with the first function parameter in the, in the function definition, the second argument with the second function parameter, and so on. A formal invocation tells you which local parameter to associate with which argument, removing the positional requirement for a standard invocation. While this is the most cumbersome approach, it is the most accurate. The standard approach is the most used approach in computer science, and I would speculate that the standard or the informal approaches are the two most widely used in mathematics. So let's look at a few function invocations. On slide 18, you can see we pass in two arguments, 5 and 3. So in this case, the s local variable was the placeholder for the 5, and the p local variable was the placeholder for the 3. And if we had a value for b, which is a global variable, we could find the result and set it to f. When you can fully evaluate a function, I call the associated variable, in this case f, an instance variable. If you cannot fully evaluate a function, and it has to stay in the form of an equation, as is the case in our example since we don't know b, I call the variable an instance equation. You might recall that earlier in the podcast I talked about abstraction, that functions allow us to have variables represent other variables. Slide 19 is an example of this, 
where our local variables are replaced with global variables, which when the function is invoked. For those of you who are getting the grasp of functions, just consider for a moment that you could have used any variables you've wanted as the local variables and you'd still end up with the same instance equation. Similarly, you could have had any of your friends stand in line for you for your concert tickets. The ticket wasn't for them, it was for you. So as long as you show up, everything is fine. Similarly, as long as you invoke the function properly, it doesn't matter which variables you use as local variables. And this brings us to slide 20, which is intentionally difficult. Imagine you had a twin and your twin was standing in line for you. When you show up, you can take the place of your twin and everything is fine. But for anyone around you, they might not even notice that you've swapped roles with another person. Or worse, if you don't arrive, your twin could end up getting your ticket, even though they do an ID check. And this isn't what we want to have happen. So now, look at what happens when we replace both local variables with the global variable s during our invocation. It's a little confusing because s was a local variable, but now it also exists after the function has been invoked. This is called vari variable overloading, and if not handled properly, is the source of many programming bugs, and as you'll see shortly, the source of the problem with Einstein's derivation. So while we've covered a lot of material related to functions, before we look at the derivation, I want to offer a few cautions. If you understand fu functions, these cautions will make sense. If you're still getting comfortable with functions, they'll make sense later. These are given on slide 21, and I've mentioned most of them during our conversation today, so I'm not going to read each of the bullets on the slide, but I do ask you to review them. So this brings us to a point where I want to look at Einstein's 1905 derivation from the perspective of functions. As you can see on slide 22, we know that tau is a function. Not only does Einstein tell us this, but we know that a function is the result of a partial differential equation. So knowing tau is a function and considering the material we've just discussed, let's look at how xi should have been derived, which is on slide 23. First, we begin with the formal tau function definition. Xi is simply C multiplied by a specific invocation of tau. Einstein uses informal invocation and sets the local variables t and x prime. This is then properly evaluated and the result is the Xi tra transformation equation. Slide 24 then helps us explain one of our paradoxes, which is how can Einstein's Xi derivation have a mistake, as I've shown in my earlier material, yet it produces the correct result? When you understand functions, you can see how this makes perfect sense because what he's doing is replacing local variables with arguments as part of an informal invocation. Now, let's look at the proper derivation for tau which is given on slide 25. We simply invoke the function and assign the local variables t and x prime to the same arguments that we used in our xi derivation. The result 
is the tau equation, as given in the model of complete and incomplete coordinate systems, and we've already explained the meaning of this tau equation in episode 7 of the series. So what did Einstein do? If you look at slide 26, you can see that by only replacing x prime with x minus vt and then simplifying tau, Einstein ended up mixing a local and a global variable. Again, by understanding functions, you can see that what appears to be a fairly straightforward simplification is actually incorrect. As summarized on slide 27, Einstein only replaced one of the function parameters, not both, before performing his simplification. Now, as you look at that page, my only point of the last bullet is to show you that the problem could have been solved in one of two ways. One way is to properly invoke the tau function, as I've presented in this presentation, as well as in my paper on understanding time. Another way is to simply use a different local variable, such as t prime instead of t within the function. And this is what I did in episode two of the podcast and again in the store's presentation. And both ways of addressing the problem are equally valid. So I want to make a few key points to summarize the material presented today. First, functions are not easy. And without the rigorous treatment of functions, as provided by disciplines like computer science, the problem with Einstein's derivation might continue to elude us. Personally, preparing for today's show helped me understand why so many people I meet with computer science backgrounds are more readily able to see the problem than people I meet from other disciplines. It's sort of like buying a red car and then noticing all the other cars on the freeway that are also red. The number of cars on the freeway that were red probably didn't change, but my perspective did. And I think that because computer scientists deal with functions in ways that Einstein never could have imagined, they are more able to see the problem in his derivation. Second, I hope that in having a better understanding of functions, you recognize what is involved in defining and using them. And while I don't expect everyone will understand everything from today's show, I do hope that everyone can appreciate the fact that functions are different from equations. And those differences allow us to see things in different ways. I know there's a lot of material in today's show. I invite you to listen to the material until you're comfortable with it and to also uh, review the accompanying presentation. As always, your feedback, comment, and questions are welcome. And I'd like to get your help in spreading the word. So please continue to tell others about the podcast and what you're learning out here. I look forward to hearing from you. You can reach me at email at relativitychallenge.com. Today's music was provided by Black Lab from the Podshow Podsafe Music Network. You'll find them at music.podshow.com. The show is copyright 2007 by Stephen Bryant and relativitychallenge.com. Thank you for joining me today, and I hope you'll return again next time. Until then, be welcome.